Uh, We are in Joshua 9, uh, so if you have a Bible, I would encourage you to go there. And um, we've been preaching through the book of Joshua and uh, looking specifically at the topic of leadership. And Joshua's leadership has kind of been what we've been studying and how the Lord was leading Joshua. And really this question, what would it look like for God to bring leadership into our lives and then potentially leadership through us into the relationships and the world that we find ourselves a part of. And we've kind of said this over and over over the past few months that God is calling all of us to grow into a deeper understanding of the leadership that he wants to bring to our lives and in and through us. So turn to Joshua 9, and I'm going to recap just for a second. The Israelites, uh, up until this point, uh, this is kind of the story of the conquest of the promised land. They've crossed the Jordan. We talked about that. They've defeated the cities of Jericho, and in chapter 8, they just defeated the city of Ai, and now are preparing to continue uh, to move through the promised land. And what this is going to involve over the rest of Joshua, and we're not going to talk through the rest of Joshua today, but it's just a lot more battles and a lot more enemies, um, that Jericho and Ai were just the beginning. So let's go to Joshua 9. We're actually going to read a good portion of this. Um, It's kind of quite entertaining I don't know why it struck me as so funny this week when I read it, but I found myself laughing. So maybe um, we will not only study together, but laugh together this morning. So uh, 9 verse 1, and it says this, Now when all the kings west of the Jordan heard about these things, which were the things like Jericho and Ai, these battles that Israel had won, the kings in the hill country and in the western foothills and all along the entire coast of the Mediterranean Sea As far as Lebanon, the kings of the Hittites, the Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, Itesites, they came together to wage war against Joshua and Israel. So all the kings, uh, Israel's conquest is beginning uh, to get some press is basically how we can understand this. Many of the regions that would be next in line You know what I'm saying? Like these people have fallen and we're kind of coming up next. They're getting wind of what's going on and they've decided we are banding together uh, because together maybe we have a shot at actually taking the Israelites on. So let's continue. Verse 3. However, when the people of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they resorted to a ruse. And then they went as a delegation whose donkeys were loaded with worn-out sacks and wineskins, cracked and mended. They put worn and patched sandals on their feet and wore old clothes. All the bread of their food supply was dry and moldy. Then they went to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal and said to him and the Israelites, We have come. Sorry, I kind of want to read that in a different voice. We have come from a distant country. Make a treaty with us. Kind of a dry throat feel. (laughs) The Israelites said to the Hivites, which were a part of the, Gibeon was a part of the Hivites, but perhaps you live near us, so how can we make a treaty with you? We are your servants, they said to Joshua. But Joshua asked, who are you and where do you come from? They answered, your servants have come from a very distant country because of the fame of the Lord your God, for we have heard the reports of him and all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, and to the king of Hirshbon and Og, the king of Bashan, and the, and the reign who reigned in Asheroth. 
And all of our elders and all those living in our country said to us, take provisions for your journey, go and meet with them and stay with them. We are your servants, make a treaty with us. This bread of ours was warm when we packed it. At home on the day we left when we came to you, now see how dry and moldy it is. As if it couldn't be just sitting somewhere else. Anyways, we'll get into that. And these wineskins that were filled, or when they were filled were new, but now see how they're cracked, how cracked they are. Our clothes and our sandals are worn out from this very long journey. So Gibeon uh, resorted to a ruse. Isn't that a funny word? Like that word in and of itself made me laugh almost the entire time I read this. Uh, You don't see a lot of rusing going on these days. You don't talk to people and, what did you do this weekend? Well, I, and it even deserves a British accent. I planned an elaborate ruse. You want a part of it? Not much rusing. Anyways, we need to work that word back into our vocabulary, but they're trying to trick Joshua. And in verse 14, we read this. The Israelites sampled their provisions. So they had sampled the things, the bread, looked at all this stuff. But they did not inquire of the Lord. Then Joshua made a treaty of peace with them to let them live, and the leaders of the assembly ratified it by an oath. Three days later... After they made the treaty with the Gibeonites, all the Israelites heard they were neighbors and living near them. I don't know if they bumped into each other at the um, Canaanite Y or, hey, where do I know you from? Did you see the guy pushing his mustache on like, who, me? You guys aren't in my mind right now, but it's very funny in my mind. Like, I think I know you from somewhere. Don't I know you from somewhere? It's like, no. You don't know who I am. Anyways, um, they make an oath with them. They make a treaty with them, and they find out that these guys in verse 17, 16, 17, they're actually neighbors. And in verse 18, we read this, but the Israelites did not attack them because the leaders of the assembly had sworn an oath to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. If we read on, the Israelites grumble in verses 19 through 27 because it was an oath by the Lord. Uh, They knew they couldn't break it, but they realized, hey, we've been deceived. And basically, the Gibeonites were going to be assigned to being uh, indentured servants of the Israelites. They talks later on about them being woodcutters and water carriers. And then later on in chapter 10, which we're not going to read chapter 10 this morning, but I'm going to tell you what happens We see these other kings and armies that banded together. They decide, oh my goodness, Gibeon, one of the people who's supposed to be banding with us, has actually tricked Israel into making a treaty with them. And so uh, not only are these people now under Israel's protection, but they can't fight with us anymore. Uh, They have switched sides effectively. And so they decided, we're going to wage war against Gibeon. Uh, We're going to start there. And so uh, Joshua and Israel are actually called in chapter 10 into keeping their oath and defending Gibeon against these other armies. And they do so, and they win. So, why are we talking about this this morning? This is what I would like for us to camp out in, is really in verse 14. Um, 
and it's really one particular thought, and it's this. Um, how do we make decisions? And I challenge you to think that leadership is a matter of decision-making. Most of my time spent with people, I spend a decent amount of time with folks, it surrounds this issue. Someone trying to make a decision about something. And feeling as though, oftentimes, they lack whatever it is they need to do it. I don't know what to do, and I don't have what I need to make that decision. Well, I'd like to make a, a suggestion, and I think this passage highlights this, is that we make decisions from one or two places, one of two places. And it's this. We either make decisions from a position of our own strength and wisdom, or we are those who inquire of the Lord, which uh, Scripture states clearly here that Joshua did not do. So let's look again at 14 and 15. The Israelites sampled their provisions, but did not inquire of the Lord. Then Joshua made a treaty of peace to let them live, and the leaders ratified it by an oath. And I would suggest this. Joshua and the Israelites weren't deceived simply by the strength of the ruse. <laughs> it wasn't just because the Gibeonites had put on such a good act, but by their unwillingness to inquire of the Lord. That's a serious thing to consider. So what does it mean to inquire of the Lord? Well, I looked up the word in Hebrew um, and what this word actually was in Joshua. And what it meant here was this. It's the word peh, P-E-H, is how it's spelled. Uh, and it means this, to ask for counsel, to ask for direction from the actual mouth of God. It's kind of interesting. It's an incredibly relational picture. <laughs> it's not just something necessarily that's even written, it's saying it's from the actual mouth of God to us. And the author is presupposing something, and we need to consider this. Don't miss this. He's presupposing this by even stating this. God actually has something to say about this matter. <laughs> that's what the author is saying by saying, Joshua didn't inquire of the Lord. He's saying the Lord did have something to say. But they didn't seek his mouth on this issue. So why didn't they? Or let's turn a corner here. Why don't we is really where I'd like for us to camp out. And I'll offer some suggestions. The first is this. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago when we talked about minimizing things, shrinking our view of our sin and things like that. Um, we have a classic way of doing this. We, we like to kind of categorize circumstances. Like these are small circumstances and these are large circumstances. And I kind of invite the Lord into the bigger things, but the smaller things, I mean, does he really honestly care about those things? God's not in the details or perhaps, you know, I've got this one. I, I'll inquire of him on a larger decision, but this one's pretty straightforward. Like, right, we see the bread, we see the shoes, we see that, you know, they act thirsty and worn out, so I can see it with my own eyes. This is kind of a smaller decision. Yet I'd encourage you, if Matthew 10 is correct, uh, that not a sparrow falls without the Lord knowing so, that he is concerned, he says later on in there, aren't you worth more than many sparrows? If he is concerned with the sparrows, uh, then I would encourage you that he's actually concerned with much more of the smaller things in your life than you would want to believe. So the first thing is, is we make 
things small. We put them in a category, say, I can deal with this. I'll invite the Lord into these larger things. I think we do this even subconsciously. I'm not saying you make a conscious decision every time you do that. The second thing, and this is even darker, and this is what I really dug into in my own heart. Why don't I inquire of the Lord is because I don't really want to know what he thinks. I really don't want to know. I act like I want to know. I talk like I want to know. But deep down inside me, I don't care. Because that would mean I might have to address something for how God sees it. Not just how I see it. And that would probably be painful. Or it actually might feel impossible to me to have to look at it from his perspective. Deep down, I trust my judgment on an issue and a situation, and I really don't want to know what the Lord thinks, if I'm honest. In fact, (laughs) a lot of times I only want to know what he thinks unless it agrees with what I already feel or think. (laughs) My kids uh, will play hide-and-seek, and they cover themselves with blankets and stand in, like, the open room. And it's literally in their minds as though if they, if they can't see me and I can't see them, then it's not real. And that's kind of how I treat it with the Lord. It's like if I don't really know what he thinks, then it's almost like he doesn't think anything. It's like he's not really there or he doesn't really care about that. You ever leave like a report card unopened or a bill unopened? It's like I know I owe that money, but if I don't really look at how much it is, it's almost like I don't really owe that money. This is how we do this. But the tension is this. Most of the time, I really believe and I trust I know what is best for me. The thought of having to constantly surrender my will to that of the Lord's, to actually inquire of him on a matter, is death to us. Because we live in such a self-sufficiency, celebrating culture. Don't need anything outside of yourself. Something else happens in this, and we're going to dig just a little deeper. Another way that this gets twisted is this. Most of the time, because of something in our past, we learn that needing advice or counsel is something that that should only last for a certain portion of your life. (laughs) Like, it's kind of okay as you're growing up, but at some point, you need to kind of grow out of needing other people's guidance the message in my head rings, how many times do I have to tell you? That's the voice. You should grow out of that. And if you haven't, something is deeply wrong with you. That lie is embedded in you and I. It even runs this deep. Need me for a little while, but need me too much and I'll leave you. Don't need me for too long. You need to grow out of that. The goal of your life is to not need anything, even God. (laughs) That's the lie. We actually believe that that's what he wants from us. (laughs) That's how deep the lie goes. I'll just say this, and I won't defend this a ton, but that's an entirely unbiblical idea. Matthew 18, Jesus sits his disciples down and says, 
unless you become like one of these little children. So, we have to ask ourselves this difficult question, and I need you to ask it. Because if you don't answer it, none of what I'm about to say matters. Do I really care what the Lord thinks about anything? I realize this is a difficult question, but what we're going to talk about won't matter unless we actually pause for a second and say this. Lord, do I really care? Do I really desire to inquire of you? Or do I know what's best for my life? My son Hudson is almost four, and I see this already in him, and it's not all bad, so don't run away with this in your head or anything like that, but everything he wants to do, he wants to do by himself even things he can't do by himself. I want to do it by myself. It's in our, our nature, in our sin nature. I want to get away from depending on anything. I see it in my little kid. But for, those, or for us to begin to be those who inquire of the Lord, which this, this term floats around Midtown a lot, to be spirit-led individuals. I just didn't do quotes. I did like bear paws. <laughs> to be spirit-led Ah. Wow. It requires a grace-infused humility to live by faith and not by sight, like Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 5. We must embrace the idea that what, and please hear me say this, what I can see and understand at any given moment is just a portion of what's really going on. We literally think our perception of any given moment is reality. We actually believe that. We trust that I have that kind of mastery over my conscious, my subconscious, your subconscious. I know what you're thinking. No, you don't. We desperately need the Lord to give us wisdom beyond what we can perceive to the reality of things. We must respond to the call to become like little children, to depend on Christ for everything. So let's look practically at how do we do this. How do we inquire of the Lord? Well, the first thing is this, and this isn't rocket science, um, the Word of God. Does God already give us some direction on the matter in Scripture? How does He see it? Now, most of us, we love to kind of hide behind this thing like, well, Scripture's huge, and how can I really know? And I'm not really sure if God even talks about that in Scripture. Well, for Joshua and Israel, in Joshua 1.7, he, Lord, when he was getting Joshua moving, he said, keep everything in the law. We could go back and look at that, but he's basically saying, everything that's happened up till now, the law that I've given Moses, be careful to keep this in front of your face all the time. Don't ever let it depart of your mouth and your mind. What happened in the law? Exodus 23, 31 through 32, Deuteronomy 7, 2. I'd encourage you to write those down. In the law that God gave Moses, he made it very clear when they took into the promised land, don't make covenants or treaties with anyone. This was not a hmm, judgment call for Joshua. He knew if he were keeping himself in front of the word, he knew this was not something I was supposed to do. God gave them clear direction that when they entered the promised land, don't do this. And here's why. He says, do not make a covenant with them or with their gods 
Do not let them live in your land, or they will cause you to sin against me, because the worship of their gods will certainly be a snare to you. He was warning him of idolatry. He's saying, if you make a treaty, this is going to end up bad, because you're going to end up worshiping the God they worship and not me. So God had given Joshua direction. What about for us? 1 Timothy three sixteen and 17. If you're familiar with the Bible, you'd be familiar with this verse. All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We talk about this verse all the time here at Midtown, 2 Peter 1, 3. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him. Where do we gain knowledge of him? We oftentimes stop there. It's like, okay, I've got everything I need for life and godliness. You do, but you know how to access that through your knowledge of Jesus Christ. The word is important. If you tell me that you sense God calling you to do something and you spend little to no time in Scripture, I would seriously challenge the source of your revelation that the Lord actually told you to do that. Gulp. You cannot inquire of the Lord without familiarity with His Word because it is the revelation of who He is. You will not know His voice if you do not know His Word. So what would this look like in our lives? Very practical. It would look like this. Spending regular time in the Scripture. A good friend of mine, mentor John Moxon, uh, Irish evangelist, used to say this all the time with his Irish brogue. He said that the, the Bible was not black ink on white pages, but it was the living, he's called it the living logos, the living Jesus. The the scriptures are not just a book or some manifesto to be mastered. But like Randy, what he talked about last week when he talked about incarnational living, that this is God's incarnate word to us. Have you seen V for Vendetta? Who's seen it? All right, enough of you. Remember when she's in the cell? This is a woman who was placed in a cell and was kind of actually in a torturous time. She was in isolation and she found this little hole in the corner of her cell and she discovered that someone was leaving little notes for her. You guys remember this? And she would pull out the notes and this person would write about themselves, about their life, about who they were. And the final note, um, I wish I had, I almost went back and really tried to watch it. Um, it was this kind of profoundly beautiful scene because even though they were never going to actually physically meet one another and they may actually die in these cells, um, they knew one another. She says at the, at the very end as she's reading this letter, she says, I may never see you or meet you, but know this, I love you. And you have this picture uh, where Natalie Portman is just weeping because she realizes um, this is not just words. This is a human being on a piece of paper. This is a deep relationship that's been formed without the ability to see or connect. Deuteronomy 6-7 says, bind this 
to yourself. Write this on your houses. Talk about it constantly so that you may not forget. Why is regular time in the Scripture important? And this is true of us, is that we may not have the time to just stop every time we need to inquire the Lord and spend an hour in the Word. Psalm 119, David said this, I think it was Asaph actually, he says, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. You hear the beauty of that? Actually, I've, I've just so poured myself into this that it's actually hidden in my heart and I can access it in real time when I need it. This is a problem for us. Everybody I know says this. I don't have time. I don't have enough time. I would suggest that you have far more time than you think you do. Our time is simply going to things that we believe we need more. It's tough. I took some pills the other day. This is how I struggle with, with even with Scripture. Uh, I play in an adult soccer league. Um, you've heard of this a few different times as I've preached. I, I wasn't able to run for a few weeks because I tore a part of my calf. We had our final game yesterday, and I called a friend of mine who deals in um, natural things that kind of help boost your energy and make you feel better. I know, you laugh it up. You guys do the same thing. So I asked him to say, hey, do you have anything that's going to help me kind of have more stamina out there today? And so he gave me some pills, and um, I don't know if it really worked because I got kicked so hard I rolled my ankle. And if I were to feel better at the end of the game, I wouldn't even know because I've got like a giant purple ankle right now underneath these jeans. So... Anyways, all that to say, it's really, isn't that how we do it? It's like, I don't really want to put in the labor. I just kind of want to take some pills every once in a while quickly. And I expect that even though I haven't ran in two weeks, I'm going to be able to go out there and perform at a high level. That's what I do with my time in the Word. I'm just going to spend just a little bit of time. I'm just going to eat a couple pills. And then I expect to have this kind of transformative experience day in and day out as I go throughout my life. And I think that's because of this. We expect everything to entertain us. I, you, we are in an absolutely sensory overload state at this point. I don't even believe this is conscious. I believe subconsciously, every time you and I spend time in Scripture, we bring this expectation to us. Make me feel something better than the TV makes me feel. Make me feel better than my iPod makes me feel. Make me feel better than anything else. I just, I want to feel something. And so oftentimes, as I hear this all the time, I just go to the Word and I just don't feel anything. Scripture is not there to entertain us. It does take regular time in it to see results. And I know that sounds so worksy, but it's not. Remember the V for Vendetta thing. It's a love relationship that's being formed between you and the Lord. Second thing is prayer. So the word and prayer, cultivating a life of meditation, contemplation, and listening to the Lord. Something happened for us after the death and resurrection of Christ, and that was that we got the gift of the Holy Spirit. John fourteen twenty five says this, All this I have spoken while I was still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit... Whom the Father will send in my name will teach you all things and will remind you everything I have said to you. We have been given the Holy Spirit 
to teach us and guide us in all things, which is a function of the present. I'm going to teach you and guide you in all things right now. But don't forget what Jesus said in there, of everything I have said to you. <laughs> the truth from the past, from Christ, which he said was from God the Father. I haven't said anything that the Lord hasn't, God the Father hasn't told me to say. So Jesus is making an important connection here. The Holy Spirit guides you and teaches you based on what has already been spoken by Christ. The Scripture, the Word. You must have some familiarity with the Word in order to be sure that you're being guided by the Holy Spirit. Proverbs 3, 5 through 8 says this, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. And lean not on your own understanding. Listen to the invitation to us here. Become like children. In all of your ways, submit to him. And he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. So what would this look like in our lives? For prayer to begin to explode. This is just a small step. But it's a big step. Learning to wait. We hate waiting. You've heard me talk about this before. To pause, to create space in our lives for reflection, to actually listen and stop talking. I wrote it down like this the discipline of hesitation in spirit led anticipation. I'm going to discipline myself to hesitate because I believe that the Spirit of God wants to speak to me. I'm anticipatory. I would suggest this. Most of our lives, we, you could count on one hand, even though I'm holding up two. You could count on one hand. <laughs> one hand. <laughs> the times that an immediate reaction was the only option. Not that it was an option, it was the only option. That's something you're going to have to consider. We live in such a speed-driven, efficiency-driven, if-I-don't-act-now-I-will-miss-out-driven culture that the idea of slowing down, creating space to listen, and inquire of the Lord seems impossible. I just don't have the time. Well, the fact is, is that most of the space we do have in our lives, which is more than we think, we spend entertaining ourselves. I'm just going to say it that way. It's just simply medicating the reality of our existence with something. Instead of seeking the Lord for the truth, the comfort, and the direction that we know we desperately need, I just want to take the pills. Give me something quicker. I don't have time to spend time with the Lord. I don't have time to develop my relationship with him. Alan Redpath said this, and this is worth uh, a read. This is in a commentary by James Boyce on this passage. And I would only change one word in this. It's kind of funny. I was like, I can't believe I'm going to say that. I would change a word in a commentary. He says, never trust your own judgment in anything. I would say never only trust your own judgment. I'm not saying you shouldn't trust that you have judgment capabilities. Never only trust your judgment in anything. When common sense says that a course is right, lift your heart to God. 
for the path of faith and the path of blessing may be in a direction completely opposite to that which you call common sense. When voices tell you that action is urgent, that something must be done immediately, refer everything to the tribunal of heaven. Then, if you are still in doubt, this is so good, dare to stand still. If you are called on to act and you have no time to pray, don't act. If you are called on to move in a certain direction and cannot wait until you have peace with God about it, don't move. Be strong enough and brave enough to dare and stand and wait on God. For none of them that wait on him will ever be ashamed. Is it possible that the Lord isn't even giving you something that you desire? Not because he doesn't necessarily want that for you eventually, but he knows that you'll become so preoccupied with that good thing that you possibly would forget him entirely. We have to learn how to hesitate, how to wait, how to pray. And lastly is this, relationships. So we have the word, we have prayer, and we have one another. We live, we seek to live as those who commit to never making decisions alone, which is a hard thing to do. Oftentimes we have an internal sense, but we don't seek someone else's external advice and saying, hey, this is what I'm sensing the Lord's calling me to do. What do you think? We get this inverted, by the way, I think. We spend like 40 times in a coffee shop talking with people, even though we don't spend any time in the Word and prayer. <laughs> so I'm going to suggest that we kind of turn the tables on that just slightly, saying let's be those who at least have some balance brought to that. Because it's kind of like I'll meet with somebody for 40 times on the same topic, and then prayer is thinking about something while checking my email. <laughs> and the Word is listening to a sermon while running. We need one another. That's very, very true. Midtown believes deeply in this idea that God has created us for community with one another and that we cannot be truly close to him while in isolation. If the Holy Spirit has been placed inside of us as well as others, then we need one another. And the unique ways that the Lord has made each of us to serve one another and to guide one another. I'm in a small group right now, and it's really remarkable. Uh, I just have to say that. Um, that these people uh, are risking being seen in their sin with one another. In our selfishness, in our pride, and we're inviting one another into speaking into what we see. Believing that God has created us to need one another in such a way. I need your words in my life. I need you to tell me what you see that I don't see, even if it's hard. I need to check the time. Last thing I would say is this. So we have the word, we have prayer, we have relationships. Very, very important three things that we can know if we're 
participating in those things regularly, we have the capacity to inquire of the Lord. The last thing is this, is the power of the oath. Joshua and the Israelites kept their oath to the Gibeonites, which I struggle with a little bit. Seriously? Come on. They were lying. You have to stick with what you said. But there's something significant in here, and I would say that it actually paints the context for everything we just talked about. The power of the oath is why we don't have to be afraid of inquiring of the Lord. We're afraid if we inquire of the Lord that what's going to be exposed is something that will separate us from the love of God and others. I'm afraid that if I actually ask the Lord what he thinks about this, what's going to be exposed is something that's going to create distance between God and I. He's going to show me what's wrong with me, and then he's going to use that against me. Even though Romans 8.39 says, nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So the word says something completely opposite, but I'm talking about how we actually function. Oaths before the Lord in Scripture are very serious. To break them would mean to risk incurring God's wrath. We read that in Joshua 9.20. He said, we've got to keep this oath. Because if we don't, the Lord's wrath could fall upon us because oaths are serious things. Well, here's what I'd like to suggest in kind of wrapping this up. We are not unlike the Gibeonites. And Jesus Christ is the truer Joshua. I can relate to the Gibeonites. I have oftentimes deceived someone in order to gain their favor, protection, affection, and care. Joshua, who was the called and spirit-led leader of Israel, was deceived by the Gibeonites. And even when he found out that they had lied, he stood by his oath because it was before the Lord. Just as we can see our own reflection in the life of the Gibeonites, we can see in Joshua a reflection of the true leader of his people throughout redemptive history. Joshua is just a precursor to what we were going to see in Jesus Christ. Joshua made his oath to the Gibeonites in deception, and he kept it. Christ makes his oath to you and I, knowing full well who we are. Let that sink in for a second. Christ makes his oath to us, knowing who we are. He is not deceived. No matter how we dress it up, no matter how much you act like you don't need him, he knows how much you need him. And he doesn't hate you for it. He's inviting you to become like a little child. Romans 5.10 says that while we were even his enemies, we were reconciled through the life of Christ. Hebrews 6, I would encourage you to go read. Hebrews 6 talks about God swearing an oath. And he says that it's an anchor for our soul. That it's our hope. No matter what we discover in inquiring of the Lord, 
no matter how we do or don't make decisions over the course of our lives, if you are in Christ this morning, his oath to you is unchanging. Because his oath to you never depended on you. His love for you never depended on you. Now that is freedom. That makes me confident to approach the Lord in all things. Because even if what I find when I approach him is something that isn't true or isn't right about me, that doesn't mean his oath to me is changed. It doesn't mean his love for me is going anywhere. You see how solid that is? Francis Schaeffer said it like this. If the Gibeonites could rely on the oath the Israelites made in the adverse circumstances of the Gibeonites' deception, when the Israelites did not even ask God's counsel, how much more confident can we be in God's oath to us? May we rely upon it. May we cast ourselves upon Christ and be those of a completely quiet heart. Man, that is significant. We inquire of the Lord through his word, through prayer, in the spirit, and through relationships. Why we have the freedom to do that is because of the unchanging oath of God to us. That he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And that there is nothing you can do to separate yourself from his love. Let's pray. Lord, I just, um, I thank you, Lord, uh, that you did swear an oath to us and that you are unchanging and that your oath uh, is based on your character. And so, Lord, you follow through. (laughs) You follow through in all the ways I don't. So, Lord, I pray that we would become those who would risk inquiring of you who would stop minimizing things, Lord, believing that like little children, you long for us to come to you, to bring even the most small things in our lives to you, that you will not shame us for those things, Lord, but you so long for a deep relationship with us, for us to know your heart for us, that all of these questions, all of these decisions that we have in life, Lord, are an invitation to deepen our relationship with you and understand the great love you have for us. Jesus, thank you. We ask this in your name, amen.